from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Jeff Irby. I'm uh, currently serving as an elder here in First Presbyterian Church on session. Would you join me in the call to worship? People of God, raise your voices in praise to God. God takes delight in our presence here. Come and enter God's house. We come trusting in the steadfast love of God. Let us rise and worship the God of love and righteousness. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, which can be found on page 76 in the New Testament. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And, that, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O oh Lord, hear us now as we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and our hearts and our hands to this word so that we may be formed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus, the Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, Edgar John Rubin was a 20th century Danish psychologist who was known for a very particular theory called figure ground organization. Now, this theory says that we identify objects that we perceive objects based on the backgrounds that they are set against. For example, words on a page are only recognizable as words if there is a contrasting background, if there is a different shape and a different color as the background so that we can distinguish the words that we are trying to observe, to oversimplify it without a distinct background without a concept in our mind of what the background is of that which we are looking at, that which we are trying to perceive, we cannot observe an object. We need the background. Now, 
this theory may be unfamiliar to many of us, and I wish I could have blown this up more, but, but, but Dr. Rubin had a particular tool to help prove this theory. Some of you can see this up front. You've seen this. It's called Rubin's Vase. I know the cameras can zoom in up on this. And he used this to prove his theory. Many of you can see the black, and when you are looking at the black as if that is the foreground and the white is the background, you can discern that this is a vase. It's a vase. But if you flip it, if the black is the background and the white is the foreground, you can see that there are two people facing each other. You see that? The background matters in what we observe. In the same way, I think many of the stories that Jesus told, many of the stories Jesus told are like Reuben's vase. I think in a single text, we can observe multiple meanings. I think in a single text, in a single parable of Jesus, we can discern, we can perceive, we can observe different moral lessons and different truths. These parables are dynamic, and more times than not, they provoke us to the possibility that multiple meanings do exist in a single text. The parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge is no exception. Like Reuben's vase, I think this single text offers at least two things to be observed. At least two things to be observed. Here's the first observation. And it may be the most obvious in this text and the one that is most familiar to us. This parable is about prayer. That's the first thing to observe. This parable is about prayer, but it's not just any prayer. Jesus is calling his followers to engage in a persistent, passionate, and determined prayer life. Jesus uses the widow as his model, and the choice of said widow, widow as this model is certainly intentional. Remember, widows faced two significant societal challenges. One was based on their gender. As a female, they were considered second-class citizens. But as a widow, as a widow, this woman had lost her only social and legal advocate in her husband. Her gender and her marital status made for an arduous Life. She was already a second-class citizen as a, as a female, but now she has lost her husband, who was her societal and legal advocate, and left alone. So this fact makes her courage in this parable all the more astounding and her unwavering resolve all the more exceptional and compelling as she seeks justice from the courts. You see, for her to use her voice to become her own advocate and to daily press the judge for justice speaks to this widow's reservoir of grit and determination. Now, there's no clarity offered as to the nature of the justice this widow seeks, only that she seeks it routinely, only that she seeks it day in and day out. There is clarity, however, as to the nature and character of the judge 
who refuses to grant her request. Jesus tells us that this judge neither feared God nor respected people. In fact, the judge says so himself, these very same words, that he has no fear of God and no reverence or respect for people. This simple description in the parable, it's very simple, but it lets us know that this judge is far from a good dude. This judge is not righteous. For those familiar with him, think now of the California judge in the case of that Stanford student convicted of a heinous crime but given only a six-month prison sentence. The national vitriol and outrage for such a verdict casts him in the same light as the judge in our parable. This judge is not well thought of. This judge is not well thought of. And this judge does not give the woman justice based on the standards of what is right and what is wrong, based on the standards of what is lawful or unlawful, but grants her justice only because he says, she keeps bothering me and wearing me out. This turn of phrase, wearing me out, literally in the Greek, translates as giving me a black eye. The widow is like Muhammad Ali, giving a black eye to those who refuse to grant justice. Jesus makes it clear, though, in this parable that while God is a judge, while God is the judge, God is nothing like this judge in the parable. God is nothing like the judge we meet in this parable who refuses to do what is right and only will do what is right only when he can no longer tolerate the cries of the one seeking justice. God is nothing like that judge. Our divine judge instead will not delay, Jesus says, in responding to the ones who cry out. Our divine judge roots every verdict in love and in compassion and in care and and shows no partiality. Our divine judge is righteous with the widows and the orphans, with the haves and the have-nots. So be like this widow says Jesus. That's the first thing we observe in this parable. Be like this widow. Be persistent in prayer. Cry out to God and expect, he says, that God will respond swiftly and respond with justice. The challenge, of course, is that there are many of us who have done just that The shoes of the widow fit us quite nicely. We have prayed and prayed and prayed some more for justice or for healing, for some measure of discernment, for reconciliation, for hope, for peace. And we feel as if our requests haven't been heard or maybe what we desire or think we need has not come to us. I've shared this in different settings before, but it fits the point I'm trying to make. When both Johnny, our sons Johnny and Luke were born, each of them had infant apnea. They both came home on monitors. If they were to stop breathing at any point in the day, the machine would release this scathing beep 
that I'm sure could wake the dead. I remember on one occasion early in the morning hours where the cry of Johnny's machine woke us up and I began to move from our room to, to the nursery and it was really only a few steps away but in that moment as that sound was going off, it felt like miles between our room and his as I hurried in to wake him into breathing. Friends, sometimes my prayer life is like that. Maybe your prayer life is like this too. I, I, I cry out to God. The beep goes off. It emanates from the deepest part of who I am. And I think certainly God will hear this. Certainly God will hear this, this cry. Certainly God will hear this beep. And I do believe, friends, that God hears it. And I believe that God is on the way. But sometimes I feel like God is still in the hallway. And I think surely there's not that much space between this room and that room. And surely he can be here. Jesus himself says he will come with expediency. He will, he will render justice swiftly. But it feels like God is still out in that hallway. And it's in those moments that this parable, in my experience, both have synergy and a lack of connection both at the same time. And a synergy where I feel like I am being the persistent widow. I am praying consistently. And I have a great resolve to make my request known to God. And yet at the same time, those prayers are not met with swiftness or with quickness. I am confident that I'm not alone in that experience. I imagine the hearers of Luke's gospel in the first century reading this, that audience that Luke had intended to read it, an audience that was being persecuted because of their faith, an audience who knew what it was like to pray Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long will it be until you show your face? Before I begin worship every Sunday morning in my preparation, I always check the news because you never know what has transpired overnight and what we need to be aware of as we come into the presence of God. And here we have a terroristic act happening in the city of Orlando, multiple people dead. We know what it's like to keep praying this prayer. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? My hunch is that many of us are familiar with that prayer. What is so hard for me, and I suspect many of us, in an age of instant gratification, in an age where we are used to having our problems solved, getting what we want in an immediate way, the habit of persistent, consistent, resolved prayer, I think is difficult to embrace. What this habit provokes is not some solution, I think, that if we just put enough quarters in the machine, I know I'm dating myself with that image, but enough quarters in the machine, if we offer enough prayers to God, and if we're just persistent enough, if we're just consistent enough, if we're just resolved enough, if we just find the, the spiritual fortitude, then the solutions 
will come to us. That's not what's happening in this text. I believe what's happening in this text is enlightened by what we see in other texts, that God is already responding when we are persistent in prayer, that God is already at work in the persistent prayer of the widow because God is actually giving her the gift of faith to keep praying. And not just to keep praying, but to keep trusting that God is God. You see, the persistent prayer is the one who has received the gift of faith. And even though we don't always get the results we're looking for, we do get more of God. We get more trust and more faith and more acknowledgement that we cannot walk this road alone, that God must be God if we are going to be whole and healed and live a purpose-filled life. God, in the prayers of the persistent person, gives us the gift of faith, the trust that God is present even when God seems absent, and faith that God desires will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven, faith that God will give us exactly what we need in the moment to be God's people and to be faithful in the challenges we face. And so Jesus comes to the end of this parable and he wonders aloud, will he find that kind of faith? Will he find that kind of trust? Will he find that kind of resolve? And that's a question that this text leaves with us in our first observation. Will he find that kind of persistence in us? For when he does, he will also find the profound gift of faith that we so desperately need to traverse this world. And so that's the first observation. We're called to see ourselves as we look at the picture of this parable. We're called to see ourselves in the widow, crying out to God with passionate and determined prayer, knowing that God will always give us the gift of faith. But like Reuben's vase, something else is observable. There's another way to look at this text. And the second image to be observed actually moves us away from our identifying ourselves with the widow. That is the most obvious observation, that we are called to be like the widow, and that is true. But I think there is a second perspective here to be had, that we don't identify with the widow, but that we identify with someone else in the story. And by process of elimination, that only leaves one other person. Might it be that Jesus is the persistent widow and we're like the unjust judge? After all, Jesus is the persistent one. He is the one who day in and day out pleads for justice. His life is one gigantic, all-encompassing global invitation for forgiveness and righteousness, for holiness, for peace, for love. Jesus is determined to put the world right. So determined is he that he's willing to give his life for that world. He's willing to be raised for that world. He's willing to even come back for that world. He's also willing, I think, to give us a black eye for that world. 
I mean, he is Muhammad Ali, floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. In his persistent fight for God's good in and for the world. Amen. And here's the challenge, though. Can we actually see ourselves as the unjust judge? I know. That's hard. We come to texts like these, and we don't want to identify with the antagonist. We don't want to identify with the villain. But maybe our Rubens vase moment is to see ourselves as the unjust judge, to not only see ourselves as the persistent widow, but from this other angle, to see ourselves in the shoes of this judge, recognizing the power that we actually have to bring good and justice in the world, but also confessing, different from this judge, confessing our refusal to do it. Because let's be honest, in some areas of our life, we have little regard for God and little regard for one another. We may only do what is right on occasion when we feel as if Jesus is punching us into it. Or maybe we're motivated by guilt or by appearance. We're overly concerned about how things look and people must see in us that we're doing the right thing motivated by how people perceive us, or maybe it's out of religious obligation, not out of love, but out of duty to do what is right. And maybe Jesus is asking if he will find a different faith when he returns, or when he returns, is he going to just find a bunch of unjust judges, people who have no regard for God and no concern for one another? Will he find a different faith not a faith like the unjust judge who only trusts in his own whimsical, inconsistent, and amoral sense of justice, but the faith of a God who is all about justice, born from love, who's actually working for the kingdom right now for all people. You know, one image here that we observe is exceptionally private, right? Jesus says, when you pray, you should, should go in, in private and pray. And you should pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a very private crying out. And yet here in this second observation, it is very public. The judge is a public figure. We have public lives. And it just may be that Jesus' persistent prayer is that we, by God's amazing grace, would be converted from a faith like the unjust judge to a faith like the divine judge, to a faith that believes the kingdom is possible and works by grace in and for that world to be known. Maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said, would he find this type of faith when he returned? Maybe he's looking for a faith that responds not because of annoyance or obligation or guilt, but because the one pleading for justice is actually justice in the flesh. That Jesus Christ is our justice. But we have his faith, that kind of faith, May we have it. 
this day and every day for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world and all of God's people say, Amen. that sustains us in persistent prayer as we cry out for God who is God to act swiftly and immediately in our lives and in this world. It is also grace that allows us to move from the faith of the unjust judge to the faith of Jesus, to the faith of God who believes that the kingdom is possible and that we just might be the answer 
to Jesus' prayers. May that grace abide with each and every one of us. And may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and all the days ahead.